she meant to go to Planned Parenthood, but she accidentally went to Pregnancy Crisis Center, um, which is a Christian organization. And they talked her out of the abortion and they talked her into adoption. Hey, welcome to the podcast, one of HP's very own missionaries. We have joining us from Lima, Peru, Chris Fry. Chris, what's going on, man? Hey, Dan, thank you so much for having me on. It's really good to see you again. It's been so yeah. long. Been so long since yeah. we were able to catch up like this. So, so tell us where you are. You're in Lima, Peru, uh, and and your parents were on a year ago on the Following Faith podcast. We used to call it the Church is Now Online podcast back then, but they're on and they were telling us like the only way you could go out was to um, go to the ATM or to get bread. That was their situation. What's what's your, what's your life been like the past couple of months, and and what's what's the current status? Yeah, it was definitely like that for a few months. I would say about three-ish um, to the point where like one time I walked out, walked my dog out. I was out like a few minutes past curfew by accident, had a police roll up on me. Um, that was kind of scary. But yeah, so by and large, um, all churches are closed. All schools are closed. Everything like that is online. Um, grocery stores are down to 20%. Malls are only at like 20% capacity. Um, thankfully, delivery services have really picked up in Peru. Um, so that's been a huge blessing and help throughout this time. And so yesterday, we switched from high alert to extremely high alert, which is okay. that like all the percentages go down from like 20% to 10% or 30% to 20%. Um, so there was a window there where like the churches could meet at like 10% capacity. Uh, which for my church would be like two people. So yeah. we didn't even bother. Yeah. Um, and then now it's like zero. Um, so we just had someone baptized. <laughs> Thankfully, the family had a pool, had a, like a little um, inflatable pool. And so the brother was able to baptize his sister while we all watched on Zoom. So it was actually really special and it was really cool. Um, for a lot of us, it was the first time to see her, even yeah. though she's been living for an entire year to all of our online messages and everything that uh, Pastor Daniel has been doing, um, he and his wife with that family. Um, just but proof. It was, it was cool. It was it's, weird. But it yeah, was cool. it's just proof that, you know, it, the the pandemic might have um, caused disruptions, but it hasn't disrupted the Holy Spirit. And, and for the church to still be able to uh, gather and and uh, see fruit is awesome, right? I think if any yeah. church is seeing people come to faith today or getting baptized, like there's very little question of like motives. Like like it's not consumer Christianity right now. It's very much like the Lord is in it. So 100%. that's exciting. That's exciting. Hey, you um you and I had a little project that we did like was it January maybe? Uh, where uh, you you invited me to be a guest preacher uh, for uh, chapel. For your international school and that's kind of like your main mission right is the school uh can you share with everybody just what you're doing through there oh yeah uh, thanks for this opportunity to talk about what we're doing yeah um so as you saw i mean you probably didn't see because most of the teenagers like to have their cameras off um but if they <laughs> were to have had their cameras on you would have seen a very uh international multicultural group um and throughout i think k through 12 we have something like uh 20-ish, 25 countries, I have the numbers in front of me. Um, we're called uh, International Christian School of Lima, 
not to be confused with my parents' school, Veteran Memorial Christian Academy. Um, we're both in the same city, very different sides. Yeah. Um, so like Fetzer, if you were to think about it, like socially, like socioeconomically, Fetzer is more kind of like the suburb area of Lima, whereas I would be like in like the downtown Manhattan vibe of Lima. Um, Traffic-wise, uh, takes us about an hour, hour and a half to get to each other. None of that is actually about what we do. Sorry. No, but that's um, okay. So- I mean, that's good context. I think a lot of us have a have a um, you know some of our people have been to your parents' school um, and think of it a bit more suburban. And and knowing that you're more Gold Coast than suburbs is helpful. Yeah, we're um, Lord's blessed us with an apartment about four blocks away from the ocean. So very cool. Um, that cold breezes in the winter though. Um, Dude, so it's snowing up here today. Just FYI. Not that cold. Not that, yeah, <laughs> not that it's cold. snowing today as we record this. I'm looking at snowflakes out my window. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, uh, you know, some some people who have been listening to the podcast and, and even clicked on the link uh, to, to listen to this episode might be wondering, what does Lima, Peru and uh, Christian Academies have to do with how God builds a family? And uh, you're on this podcast because we want to talk to you about your family, not necessarily... Uh, yours and your wife Paula's family, uh, but the family of origin that you came from. And uh, so, Chris, do you want to let the cat out of the bag? Why are you on this episode? I am on this episode because um, I am adopted. And so, yeah, so I get to bring to the table that aspect of the series. I think you had, I think it was your first episode. Uh, uh, there were parents adopting kids. And now I get to bring to the table the other side of that coin. And I'm really uh, excited for this opportunity to share with uh, with HP and whoever else listens. I wonder how many people at our church actually know you're adopted. Uh, Because, you know, you look, I'm just going to say it, you look a lot like, uh, you know, your parents. And so it, it, it would never have crossed my mind that you were adopted at all. I remember sitting around the table uh, with your parents one day and they were telling us their story and got to the point where you popped in and I was blown away, um, that, that you're adopted. And I'm sure that's been a story that has kind of been a fun thing to talk about for you over your life in, in that sense. Has it always been, um, for you just a, you know, a funny bit when people find out that you're able to laugh with them about, I mean, what are some of the emotions behind that? Yeah. So I would like, I want to be honest, and I'm going to share like some of the stuff that I wrestled with my identity, but to yeah. help people right off the bat understand the proportions. Like, I love that I'm adopted. Yeah. I, it's never really been an issue with like my parents and me. Um, I don't know my biological mom and like totally have accepted that. My parents really nailed the nail on the head with how to do this whole adoption thing. Um, so, just if you hear me, you to listen to hear me talking a little bit negatively, not negatively, but you know, frankly, when we get to the frankly, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Frankly, about you know, finding my identity and a couple of the harder aspects of it. Please just always keep in mind this first part where it's like 99.9% of the time of these, you know, 30 years being alive, totally love it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it cracks me up. I, I love almost doing it as a practical joke <laughs> when uh, telling people that I'm adopted. Or uh, like in school, my dad was, you know, my principal and my teacher. And, you know, whenever he would do a dad joke in class, I'd just be like, I'm adopted. 
And it was just, <laughs> just like, I tell better jokes. I'm, a, I'm adopted. That's not a genetic trait. You know, and it's, my parents always rolled with it. My my brother is also adopted. Uh, my parents adopted three kids. And then yeah. one of them passed away before I was even born. Yeah. And uh, it's just always has been a part of me as a part of the story. I love to tell it. I love watching people be confused after they like meet my parents and like realize that I actually tell worse jokes than my dad <laughs> and like um, all of that. It, just, it cracks me up. I love, I love it. I love it when people are shocked or they don't believe it. They're like, well, no, you're not adopted. Like, yeah, no, like there's actual paperwork and I know yeah. it's weird. So you were, exactly like parents. you were adopted. Um, I don't actually know your story, so I'm getting, you know, we probably should have done a little podcast prep before we hit the, hit the record button. But, um, were you were you adopted as a as an infant? Yeah, um, so my parents were already in the mission field, okay. and um, you know I would I really should know the math on this better because it's my life. But it was something like seven years before I was born, um, my older brother Andrew passed away, and he was adopted. And my brother John, who now lives in Arizona, was also adopted. Um, different families, by the way. Um, none of us were adopted siblings or anything like that. Just different backgrounds. Yeah. Maybe even different states. I'm not sure. But uh, Baptist Children's Home knew that my parents were still interested. And so when I became available, <laughs> yeah. um, they became all the paperwork and you know, everything they could down there. And then um, when it was time, they flew to the States. They did any of the last minute paperwork. I think they had to like um, do something do something in front of a judge or something like that. And then they brought me right back down um, as soon as they could. So you, you, um, your story is really incredible in the sense of, um, you know, a lot of the stories of people in Hobart, it's not uncommon for someone to be born in Hobart, to be raised in Hobart, to go to college somewhere or to, to start a job somewhere and then start a family in Hobart and then have kids in Hobart. And those kids, you know what I'm saying? Like, like a lot yeah. of our lives are just the traditional life is born and raised here and raising our kids here. And you, um, you don't fit any of those molds, right? So you, you are a missionary kid, which already has um, its own set of challenges, right? So a third culture kid, um, but also adopted. And so there's some of these moments that um, I'm sure we're going to get to. What is your earliest memory of finding out that you're adopted? And, and how did that hit you? Do you remember that? No, um, because at every age, my parents explained it in the appropriate way that you would explain anything about birthing or birds of the yeah. bees. <laughs> yeah. Only it was like... Um, you know, a lady in the States, <laughs> right? birds and bees, however you would explain that, you know, yeah. to a three-year-old and then a 10-year-old. And then, you know, God gave us the opportunity to raise you for her. And we loved yeah. you. Yeah. And uh, we, we always wanted another kid. And, you know, this is actually like what Jesus and God do for every Christian when they become saved. Um, and so I have just always known that I was adopted. Um, it has never been an issue like that. There was no shell shocking moment. There was no grand revelation of like uh, a gene test coming back and oh, you're not my dad. No, it's like they've always been my parents. They've always been my mom and dad. Um, and when I talk about my biological family, I just somehow fell into the habit of always saying 
you know, my biological mother, right? To distinguish from my real mom, Diane Fry. And yeah. same with my dad. Um, so you grew up and, and John must have been in the same boat. Uh, and a lot of our people love John and Leah, and uh, we're going to say nice things about them because I didn't get their permission to talk about this for them. But being the brother, from your perspective, you know, was that a thing for you guys that you talked about, knowing that um, you both, I, I've, you know, you guys are as thick as thieves together, uh, and and like true, you know, your brothers. Um, did did adoption and and the the feeling of adoption that I ever come up as a as a brotherly type of thing? No, I think the most we did was like compare and contrast our stories. Yeah. Um, with how adoptions happened in the 80s and 90s. And I think there's been some changes um, and the changes have pros and cons. I mean, every situation is different, um, but I'm glad I was adopted with like kind of the more closed formality mm. of it all. Um, I know I keep every now and again, I'll see a blog post saying that's that's bad. But like for me and my brother, it's actually worked out a lot better. And, um, but yeah, so I mean, every now and again, it, we would just be talking about it, you know, a little bit, um, just like how our biological families would have been, hmm. you know, and like comparing the motives of our biological parents, um, without, you know, giving John's story for John, I believe he would be fine with me saying it, but, um, his, he, his was more of an adoption of necessity. Because um, I believe like they were part um, Italian immigrants, um, like the, one of them was. And so they, they had a lot of kids and they literally could not afford anymore. Yeah. And so it was a very self-sacrificial act on their part of like, we can't provide anywhere near a decent life for one more kid. We have to, you know, um, give them the opportunity for a better life where, you know, they can afford, afford it. Whereas, um, my story, um, is that my, bio my biological mother was married, seemed roughly about middle-aged because from the one paper document that I have, um, it just says that she had two teenage children and it looks like she ran away from her family and, um, and went out and partied and uh had like some sort of midlife crisis and then came back from that uh however month-long adventure pregnant and um she meant to go to Planned Parenthood but she accidentally went to Pregnancy Crisis Center wow um, which is a Christian organization and they talked her out of the abortion and they talked her into adoption and then there's even something about um, how she had a, some say into the family. And so when she found out that there was like a missionary family who essentially believed, you know, what Pregnancy Crisis Center believed, she was like, well, you guys are pretty great. So I guess I will want to go with that. And, you know, assuming, you know, that they're missionaries, you know, they must be like <laughs> um, pretty pretty good in that religion you know what i mean i'm trying yeah. to like word it yeah yeah. Might have yeah. Heard it. um and you know she just like is the country safe you know and they were like yeah it's it's decently safe um and so yeah and so that's how my parents were greenlit 
on her end. And, uh, and then my parents were really excited. Uh, the, um, there was a small window when my parents were still in Peru, but I was out of the hospital and they called the uh, foster mother who took care of Andrea and Jonathan out of retirement to take care of me. And uh, we call her Grandma Cartwright. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, so, I, so Grandma Cartwright took care of all three of us and visit her as much as we can and uh, love her and her entire family. So you said at the top of, of the interview that, you know, you, you have um, just a tremendous joy, I think, in your family. And if anybody's ever spent time with you guys, either just you and your brother, you and your parents, um, it definitely comes through that, you know, God's knit you together into one of the finest families that I know. I mean, I'll just say that for sure. Um, but you also said that it hasn't been easy. What were, what were one or two of the things that um, growing up you, you had to wrestle with that maybe a kid who has, you know, biological parents living in the same house with them being raised by biological parents? parents might not know is happening in in the mind and the heart of someone who's processing adoption that's a really good question and um perhaps the only time i've actually been asked it um well what better time than with a microphone yeah, you know yeah exactly um i would say the biggest one was in eighth grade when i began to have some medical issues okay um Around that time, after that time, I was diagnosed with something called mitral valve prolapse syndrome, yeah. which is very similar to Marfan syndrome, which um, is really just a genetic thing where your skeleton stretches a bit and your eyes get a little wonky. And um, before I gained you know, my uh, college 15, uh, my fingers looked much more disproportionate to the rest of my hand and wrist, and I was able to wrap my thumb all the way around like the first section of the pinky like almost the second one so um elongated st structure of the skeleton unfortunately it didn't make me over six feet tall that would have been nice but uh stop short at five ten and a half uh. but um <laughs> but uh part of that was that my sternum rotated and went to the left and so the left part of my rib cage sticks out and um, the mitral valve of my heart will every now and again spit out a little bit more blood than it should. And um, so we had to watch that, do a couple EKGs and other things, really until I was like in my 20s, just to make sure that that valve was okay. And there was a while there where, you know, like the doctor, my parents, like sat me down and like, if things go south, you might have to get a pig artery <laughs> to switch it out like which is like major heart surgery yeah yeah and it, it yeah. was like it's weird but they've done it before but it's major heart surgery but that's why you're going to have all these tests until like you're like 21 or 23 or whatever and uh, thankfully it never progressed to that level um besides you know just the rib cage which most people i don't think even realize um until like I show them where like I put my one hand on one red cage, one hand on the other, and you see like there's like a half inch gap between the two. Uh, most people really can't realize it. That is probably why I wear glasses or contacts. It's not just bad vision; it's bad vision because of all of this. Yeah. All that to say that during that season, man, I really wish I had medical history. Mm. Um, 
you know, I would think that the biggest thing that would weigh on an adopted kid's heart is the medical history. That's the most practical one. You know, um, do I have, you know, a history of Alzheimer's or cancer or, um, you know, did my biological father um, have this? Was his worse? You know, did he get all the way from mitral valve to Marfan? Um, you know, did my, do my um, biological half siblings, step half siblings, did they grow through this as well or anything like that? Um, so the most practical thing about it would really just be the medical aspect of, you know, we were all just going in blind and yeah. didn't have any history. I want to call that call out what's behind what you're saying, though, because in one sense, you're right. The practical matter of understanding certain things about yourself, you know, in my family, there's uh, heart disease and diabetes and, you know, things like that, that inform some of the steps I need to take in my diet. But but really, it's things that I know I need to do as a human anyway. Um is it really the the here's my question is it really just the the understanding of who you are and then the the propensities your body physiologically might have or is it deeper than that is there a deeper connectiveness kind of what you said about your biological half brothers of knowing that someone else has gone through this too and being rooted in a family where this is a, a historical thing do you know what i'm saying there's a, there's an emotional component to that connectivity Whereas one of them is a, so it's links to the past, whereas another is just the fear of the future. Wh yeah, which of those I, do you think, if I get in your head a little bit, which, which was it? I would say it's a mix of both. Um, in the moment, right, with all the tests and, you know, the, the rib cage braces and everything like that, it was very surface level. Like, gosh, I knew what was going on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, like with the hierarchy and needs, when you actually have time to stop and think about it, there would be this part of like, I bet if I had half siblings, if I knew them, if they, you know, contacted the place and reached out and I reached out, you know, they could give me tips. There could mm. be some sort of support of people who actually are, have gone through this, right? Because, um, and this might be true of any parent, right? Um, do do everything you can to support but unless you've gone through it, there's a lid on the support you can give, or there's yeah, a, a slightly different flavor, right? Mm -hmm. um, I always like to use food analogies in my classes. <laughs> so, you know, you can be giving, you know, like almost the exact same burger, right? But it's just missing that extra dose of barbecue sauce, yeah. you know? And as much as you appreciate that burger, it's not the exact same burger you have because it's missing that one ingredient. And um, and so I would say that that was partially it. Uh, what's interesting, though, is the Lord, I wasn't alone, which is statistically almost impossible because at my school of 20-some-odd missionary kids, there was one girl who was going through scoliosis. Hmm. Um, and so she had to wear a back brace um in her high school times and so not a lot but every now and then she would just say something to me like hey i get it you know because while she was wearing the back brace for scoliosis and i was wearing 
you know, this chest brace to help keep my left side from juking, from becoming like the high <laughs> tower of my chest. I just trying to restructure the whole bone growth there. She got it. She got the actual physical pain, right? Yeah. But um, again, please, no one misunderstand. My parents were a thousand percent there. Yeah. You know, um, I, I have the best parents, you know, and uh, they supported me. They were with me. They prayed. I think they had it harder than I did. I think they had um, a harder, a tapa, a harder, uh, what's the English word, a harder moment because, you know, as their child, going through this helpless, you know, without mm. the history and anything like that. I think it's probably harder on parents as I get older. Yeah. Um, so by no means am I minimizing what they went through. And my brother um, later on would tell me, you know, like it was hard for him because he was in college. So he was hearing everything late. And, uh, and so out of all of us, I probably had it the easiest despite me being the one that had the weird genes. That's incredible. And what a what a gift from the Lord to even, you know, I think one of the the beauties of the stories that we're telling is is just the communal aspect of how every family fits into a larger superstructure of a greater communal family. And one of my one of my convictions on the local church uh it, is that it helps it helps everyone. We're doing parent-child educations in a couple of weeks, and we'll say this. You know, it takes a it takes a village to raise a child, and what a beautiful gift it was to have your friend in school with you. You know, the Lord just knew in adopting you to that family, to that area, knowing you'd be in that place, that that would be a rock for you. Mm-hmm. And just to see the, the the previousness of God in the midst of that, what a blessing, um, for sure. And a lot of those like nearly impossible statistical anomalies that I've seen around my life or in my life are why I can't not believe in God personally. Yeah. You know, like I study apologetics and I know, you know, the or I'm familiar with, you know, all the Kalman um model and, you know, the uh Pascal's wager and everything. But at the end of the day, the fact that Amanda was there in a school of 20 some odd kids, family from Canada in order to be able to support me she probably doesn't even remember that i had a chest brace or that Mm. you know she encouraged me um the fact that all of that worked out you know the fact that i met my wife as you know toddlers because i was adopted and brought down to peru um all of these quote-unquote coincidences it just shows that there is like there's a master hand at play so like whenever I doubt, whenever, you know, like any argument that comes forward, I always have to just push against it with like my own personal story. Like, how can you, ex- how can I justify any other explanation when I've lived this unique life experiences where, you know, I've seen things like this. I've, the improbability of my biological mom choosing adoption being brought to peru being saved all these other things it's like i'm it's there's no other logical choice for me but to believe in the savior and i think being adopted gives me a certain appreciation that non-adopted people don't really have um about the gospel 
Because for me, I don't know, maybe I'm off base, but unless you're involved in adoption, when you read that we're heirs of Christ, that sounds rad, right? That um, we're adopted into God's family. You're like, oh, that's such a cool idea. Guys, it's not a cool idea. Like there is legal documentation and paperwork in heaven. You are now Jesus's little younger brother in a real way, like Jonathan is my real brother. Like yeah. the truth, this idea should shake us and transform us to our core. And unfortunately, even as an adopted person, I forget it on a daily basis or else I would live and look and glow in a totally different way. But uh, when push comes to shove, you know, this is what drives what this is. You know, I want these unsaved students who are, you know, in my school, I want them to be my spiritual, but also literal brothers, right? Just because something isn't physical doesn't mean it's also not literal. I still love that. Spiritual truth that is still literal. I love that you went there because that was my next question. And you you just kind of read my mind. Um, You had said it earlier that one of the ways that your parents helped you normalize your adoption was to to talk about it openly. And then you also said, I heard this earlier and I wanted to come back to it and you just did, just in the sense that they brought around the metaphor of the gospel as a picture for your family. And one of the things I loved about the Labarge story was that, um, you know, we got to share, this is, this is what God does. And you're so right, man. We don't think about the implications of it. And even just you sharing about your, excitement of the the documentation in heaven. I've never thought about that ever, never. And to hear you just encourage me with that is a huge deal. Do you think that one of the greatest things your parents did was to connect your physical, you know, your, your, your legal relationship and your, you know, your, your relationship with your parents, Alan and Diane to their faith? Did that help you, you're. I think what I'm hearing you say is that helps you emotionally deal with um, this idea that maybe you know your your biological mom is out there somewhere, but also the beauty of what your family looked like, as opposed to maybe the absence of what your family looked like. I'm I'm a little bit all over the map on that question, so I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a toss up, but I think you you get what I'm. No, I at. think yeah, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and I think you really um, nailed it on the dot. As an adopted person, as an adoptive family, while we acknowledge what is not there and there are things to deal with and wrestle with, you know, as joyful Christians, you know, as, you know, realists, because this is the reality, this is actually the truth, you look out the beauty that is there, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I tend to lean towards pessimism generally, um, but with this, the reality, the reality of it is just so overwhelming you know uh modern day adoption traces itself all the way back to first and second century because the christians took this idea of adoption which is really only done by roman tyrants and uh the political elite when they realized that their sons were screw-ups and they didn't trust them with you know the family wealth they would then adopt you know a nephew who was more stable more straight-headed would not completely wreck the entire, you know, Middle Eastern economy. They would adopt them to like take over the throne. And I think one of the Caesars, I forget which one, 
like that's how he got into power. He was not actually biologically related, but he was adopted, and that because like the biological sons were <laughs> subpar choices. Um, and so it was really it was the first, second, third generation Christian Christians that gave us modern adoption, where they looked at you know the Old Testament in the writings of um, Jesus's half brother James about you know protecting the widows and orphans, and they said, well. You know, all of these apostles are talking about how God adopted us into his royal family and how that actually puts us above the angels. Because now, you know, we are the sons of God restored from the Garden of Eve, from the Garden of Eden, and we are now siblings to the Messiah through adoption. We should be taking that idea, this concept of royal adoption, and living it out. And so it was actually first, second, third a century Christians that gives us modern adoption because what they began to do is they began to literally adopt the orphans instead of just like, hey, here's a couple bucks, don't spend it on a toy, maybe buy something for your family. They said, no, I want to go through the legal process of welcoming you into my home. We are not going to abandon you. You are now my child. You will inherit equal portions of whatever wealth I have at the end of my life as my biological children. Why? Because this is what God did to me. Hmm. Adoption, modern adoption is rooted in Christianity, is rooted in, you know, that second generation of Christians, figuring out how do we apply, how do we live out what Christ did? Christ adopted us into his family. Because I hear so yeah, I hear so. How much? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just hear so clearly in your story um, a robust understanding of the gospel, and I'm curious how much of you know. I, I come from a long line of preachers, and so God used preaching in my life to be the thing that allowed me to understand the gospel. And I know some people come from a long line of you know musicians and God uses music in their life to be and so I'm just curious because I hear I just hear it coming out of you so clearly and I'm what role did your adoption play even in your salvation um I don't know if that's an, something you're aware of but I my hunch is that uh you heard the gospel and it made a lot more sense to you because of your your legal state and your relational state with your folks is that is that true um, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've never I, thought of it in those terms, but probably I might've been able to st- uh, start a half second in my spiritual relationship than maybe most people. Uh, but, um, more than that, what I have realized is when people ask me my life story, I can't not evangelize. Right. Because yeah. I get into this. It's, baked thing, in. it's like, <laughs> and like, I, I can't, it's so hard and it really shows like when I'm off in my spiritual life, when I don't slip into preaching the gospel, when I explain my story, because not only do I have to explain adoption, I have to explain what a missionary is. I have to explain why my 60 plus year old parents are still doing in Peru and what I do. I, it's really hard. And it's a giant red flag in my life. And people are like, Hey, so tell me about yourself. And I don't at least Mm. dip a toe in the gospel because it is, such so an integral part as to why I'm in Peru, why I grew up in Peru, but I'm also not a Peruvian citizen, why my parents stayed in Peru throughout the terrorism in the 80s, and why I love the fact that I'm adopted. Yeah. Like, 
that story only makes sense if you understand a little bit about my belief system. Right. Like, and then everything kind of clicks and they're like, oh, so this is like a whole thing. Like, <laughs> it's all and, together. Uh, yeah. So, hey, yeah. you, you kind of went there with the, the, you know, you grew up as a, as a, as a, uh, um, you know, you're a foreigner, right? You, you are the immigrant in Peru to put it that way. You are the outsider. Um, and you grew up in Peru. Uh, Peru feels very much like home to you. I think, uh, the years that we met, you were living in the Portage area, the Wheeler area. And, uh, you had tricked me. I didn't realize that you were not a native, like, you know, uh, you, you weren't natively from Porter County. Uh, but here you were teaching at a private Christian school in the area and, um, a little bit of a cultural chameleon, if I can use that term and, and mean it in a positive sense. Uh, tell us a little bit about maybe not, not just in the sense of adoption, but what, what has it been like for you to be a missionary kid in the midst of, of this, uh, of this story for you? What are some of the things that maybe you'd want some people up here in the States to understand about both the blessings and the challenges of being a, a, an MK? Um, so, you know, starting with the blessings, um, it's, it's awesome. You know, I, I grew up bilingual, even though my brother will always speak better Spanish, despite having not lived in South America for eight years, it will always be better. But I know enough to be married to a Peruvian who doesn't speak much English, so I'm doing right. okay. Right. Um, um, but, um, you know, I, I there is a lot that you can appreciate when you grow up in two cultures. I think it gives you a different view on everything. And uh, with all the different political climate and changes and everything else that's happening in the U.S. and in Peru, which we probably don't even have time to talk about the Peruvian elections right now, but please be praying for Peru. We're about to either, um, maybe we can have time to circle back to that point. Yeah, we will. The candidates. I'm writing it down. uh, Neither one is good. But um, so it gives us a different vantage point, I think. And having two cultures to pick and choose the best from is pretty cool. Right. So there are some things I look at American culture. I'm like, this is awesome. This is like really runs parallel to the Bible and how we should be living. So I definitely want to lean into that part of culture. And then there are parts where it's like, well, now that I have this compare and contrast with Peru, I know I probably should lean out of that aspect. And same with Peru, same with the Peruvian culture. You know, there are parts where it's like, I want to lean into this aspect of the Peruvian culture because it'll at least help me personally to to grow in you know biblical culture you know jesus culture and there are some aspects where even if it's really small um like um it's not being racist not a stereotype if it's true but peruvians tend to run late you know and so i think that actually is a pretty good mild example of what we're talking about right where the bible has a lot to say about being orderly and being on time and respecting people's time Right. So your average Peruvian um, lives on Ora Peruana, lives on Peruvian time. Right. So they can show up 15 to two hours late to certain events. Right. Um, but because I have this weird position where I can kind of pick and choose and um, mold myself to the, best aspect, to the best aspects of both cultures, 
you know, I recognize that for me personally, at least with my understanding, it is more respectful to people, more orderly, more like Jesus to be on time than to be late as much as possible. And granted, with all that being said, there are like giant significant reasons as to why Peruvians run late, right? Um, traffic is horrible, uh, financial reasons, also just being closer to equator tends to have a psychological effect on humans. And so you understand also why all these social, social economical, geographical reasons influence the culture. So you can't even be too hard because you grow up and you see why. And you're like, well, yeah, because most can't afford a taxi or their own car, so they have to take the bus. And buses are always slow. And so it allows that flexibility of soul and mind to jump back and forth and reason and understand um, both cultures. However, I would say one of the challenges is having a source of identity hmm. and um as an adopted missionary kid this was one of my biggest struggles um especially high school and college just who am i you know because i could only like take my parents ancestry so far you know and it's like but what does you know their english french roots how much does that actually apply to my genetic code you know and what does that mean for who i am and what i like and what i do and then growing up in both cultures the way i did um it's like having two homes right um growing up bicultural growing up as a third culture kid you have two homes and you have no homes at the same time almost oh, wow um so you you can make a home anywhere but you're never a hundred percent whole because you're always going to be missing someone or some aspect of your culture. When I'm in the States, like you just talked about, you know, I lived five years in the States, um, going to college and working at Portage Christian, living with my grandpa and my brother for a time. You know, there was, I loved it. I love the States, you know, a lot about my personality actually jives a little more with the overall American culture but there are always something missing, right? The way Peruvians do chicken. <laughs> uh, yeah. hearing, hearing Peruvian uh, pop music on the bus, being able to take a bus and not be so dependent on a car, uh, the entire language of Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so there was always parts of me that were missing, you know, and the people I know here, the culture, the friendliness, the hospitality. Um, even if it's the same amount of hospitality, it has a different flavor between American hospitality and Peruvian hospitality. How they do hospitality has a different vibe, you know, even if, you know, they're the same amount. Um, and so now living here in Peru, you know, there are aspects where, where I still feel like there's a little bit missing, right? My brother's in Arizona. You know, I'm not watching my nephew grow up. Um, I'm limited to my capacity of how much I can be the cool uncle mm. um, from down here. Um, there are aspects to myself and my perspective that my um, my brothers-in-laws just won't understand um, because they've not had the opportunity to travel and visit the United States. Um, different things like that. Uh, where in every in either country that I am, you know, I find myself having to explain certain aspects of me, um, 
a si silly, simple example, if we have the time, would be um, in high school. So my parents did furlough. So every four years in Peru, one year in the States. And uh, one of those one year in the States fell in 11th grade. I went to Portage Christian School for, for 11th grade. And uh, a few of my friends and I went to Buffalo Wild Wings. And in Peru, we always mix ketchup and mayo. Um, you almost never have those separately. You make something that's called a golf, golf, salsa golf, um, golf, cream, broth, condiment, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's really, really good. Don't knock it till you try it. <laughs> but um, they all looked at me so weird. And this was like my first outing with my new buddies. And like, I always have to ask the waitress, please bring me mayonnaise. They come back, no, like, please bring me a lot more mayonnaise. Like, pretend it's barbecue sauce, bring me that amount of mayonnaise. And then they do. I so, say, you know, I'm opening up the mayonnaise packets. I'm putting it all there. One girl just like has like this uh, choking reaction to the smell of mayonnaise. Everyone's looking at me weird while I'm making my uh, my orange mixture of mayo, <laughs> mispronouncing the Parmesan wings as Parmesan. And just uh, if you would have seen me at that B-dubs, you would have known that I was not from Northwest Indiana. Um, I got better at hiding it little by little. or. Um, or at college, you know, I'm a, I'm not, I'm visibly not an athletic guy. Like you can see that um, no matter what I wear, but I remember playing, you know, some pickup uh, indoor soccer at college and like an athletic girl telling me like, I was, while we were playing, I was thinking, why is this like that guy good at soccer? And then I remember you're from <laughs> Peru. I'm like, so apparently like just being in Peru, playing with my friends during recess enough, makes me as gave you the average, edge. <laughs> like it gave me enough of an edge to hold my own as a clearly non-athletic guy like still not as good as everyone else that you know actually ran <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on the basis because like i was winded but you know i played better than the average fat person average fat american <laughs> um and then like i'm nowhere near as good as the average fat peruvian i mean i still get my tail whipped by like 50 year old diabetic men who like know how to kick the ball over their head. And like, it's like, they can be the most out of shape person, but as soon as they're on the soccer field, they're just enter into this beast mode and they're like 50 or 60. Still, I'm going to lose to them, but I'm better at soccer than the average American that falls in my BMI chart. Uh, that's going for me. That's awesome. So uh, I want to ask you maybe one last question. You know, how, how did you go about starting to unwind some of those tensions, maybe during your high school and college days of asking, you know, who am I and how does how does my life fit in uh, to the structures around me? Um, it, it seems, Chris, like you've processed a lot and your parents have provided a space um, I lied when I said this is the last question. I got one more question I want you to answer after this, but I'd just be curious. How, um, I mean, how did that go for you? What were some things that helped you really come to a solid foundation of who you are? I think no matter what our story is, no matter what our faith system is and how seriously we take it, we always have to choose a North Star, right? We always have to set up a tent pole in our life. And for me, the strongest, most sure, most stable tent pole. Um, was that my citizenship is in heaven. And so no matter how far away from home I will always feel, no matter how many gaps I feel in my personhood due to being adopted, growing up as a third culture kid, 
not having that thing where I can say like this person that just visited my house, like I've known them since kindergarten. I really don't have anyone like that in my life. Yeah. Uh, I don't have, you know, the boys from high school. <laughs> yeah. There's, we're all just so spread out. Um, so no matter what is missing, quote unquote, in my life, I know that it's okay because more than having a citizenship in Peru or more than being Peruvian, more than being American, more than being the son of Alan and Diane, um, my true identity is in Christ. And I know a lot of people say that and, you know, maybe you listener, you're sick of that cliche, but um, for me, that has become a very solid cornerstone of my identity where upon that truth, everything else makes sense and everything else fits correctly into its proportion. And upon the truth that one day I will go to my true home, whether by death or by the new creation, all the goodbyes will be restored. Um, with my seniors, we were just reading uh, The Great Divorce, yeah. which is all about, um, how the af- about the afterlife, but also more about our daily life and sin. But one of the things that really impacted me reading through it this year was there was a line that went something like, um, when you take all the pain and hurt and hate of sin and hell, it will not even register when you weigh it against the smallest, worst day of joy in heaven. Right. And so that's, that's my cornerstone. That's what, that's what um, stabilizes me. That book literally fell off of my shelf before I hit play. Uh, it's right, it's right <laughs> here on my shelf behind me. Uh, funny you bring it up. Uh, what a great it's C.S. Lewis. If you don't haven't read The Great Divorce and you're looking for something to like Audible or like ebook or even you should buy a paperback copy of it, um, listeners, do that please now. Um, that is such a, a helpful perspective, Chris. And I think what you're doing. Even just from you sharing your story with us today, um, sharing you know some of the the joys and the complexity of of your life and the different situations you found yourself in, and relating it back to the to the gospel, I think you've taken that idea of our citizenship being in heaven out of the realm of this ethereal, like like you know sort of philosophical, you know maybe uh, pastors are saying this right now to their congregations who are very tied up in politics or in the political landscape or in fears of what might happen here in, you know, Northwest Indiana, the country, whatever that might be. We've tried to anchor our identity and our, of our people in the gospel. And I think just your story has done in, in 40 minutes, what I've tried to do for, you know, the last 14 months. Um, and so there's a real power I see to it. And I want to th- say thank you for that. Um, one last question I have, um, and I know I know we want to circle back on the political landscape of Peru, and I'm, I'm quite interested in that. Um, but I'd love for you just to give some advice. All right, so you're not a parent, um, but you were raised as an adopted kid in a, in a different country than, uh, you know, where we are and, and where the people native around you are. So you're third, third uh, culture kid. Talk to the parents who um, have adopted a kid, if you can, 
um, we've got we've got a, a whole set of families at our uh, our campus. Many families are fostering right now, fostering to adopt. One family just um, welcomed a one year old into their family that is a um, a nephew to them, and uh, God has just really made it clear to them that they're to raise this child. And so um, I don't know if could you give a little advice just from someone who's gone through it and and has tremendous joy having been adopted. What would you say to a parent? who is wondering, you know, how do, how do we make sure that this kid um, is raised in a way that we want to raise them and have expectations for that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I would like to start my reply by just saying that every circumstance is so unique, you know, um, while there is a lot of overlap, it is different um, taking legal guardianship of a nephew instead of adopting a complete random infant like I was or fostering to adopt or, you know, just fostering all of those are such beautiful and unique stories. So um, take whatever minuscule grain of wisdom you hear and, you know, modify it, change it up however you need. But um, I would definitely say honesty truly is the best policy Um, being honest with them from as young as possible. Mm. uh, You really want to avoid that shell shock moment um, because and granted i don't know how this would work out for every parent and every kid but um, by and large you run the risk of looking like a liar and that is um that is something that you might not ever be able to repair 100 percent um we don't have any kids yet so i might be taking this back in a few years but um as of right now personally i don't even run around that risk with something like santa claus hmm. um like, I think by and large, kids can understand metaphors. You know, this represents this, right? This Lego represents what you saw on TV. So that's kind of more what I was, what, I, what I'm thinking, you know, Santa Claus represents, you know, um, the spirit of Christmas and you can take it from there. But I personally don't want to run the risk of giving my kid in his teens reasons to doubt, more reasons to doubt me than what I'm naturally am going to screw up. Um and so th- just think through that as you are adopting, as you are taking legal guardianship, as you are fostering. Um, and, you know, being honest with how you feel about it, being honest about, you know, the challenges that you as a parent experienced. And um, I think in a lot of ways, the kid understanding the process and the paperwork and the trial and error and the lawyer and the boring illegality, I think in a lot of ways that comes as a substitute for those nine months of um nine months of, labor, of yeah, uh, pregnancy yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? i'm with you yeah um i almost forgot the normal word yeah. um but yeah and so tell it making that making all the paperwork and the we went but we were denied because of this or because you know we didn't have a fire extinguisher so the guy had to come back use those stories to help form you know a parallel pregnancy story, right? Where, you know, you know, pregnant mom might, you know, a mom might tell her kid like, yeah, when I was pregnant with you, I really wanted pickles, you know? Tell us like how hard it was going through the paperwork and how much it cost and how much it cost might be like a age-based thing because you know, can, the can parents that we inflate bought. that number for like current day value? Is that a thing? that can... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, 
but I would say, you know, cause that is part of your story and that is going to be part of the kid's story. Right. Yeah. Uh, how, how much more shallow would my story have been if I didn't know that my biological mom ran away from her family yeah. and came back pregnant by accident. Yeah. Um, it just wouldn't, it just would feel like I came from, you know, hatched from an egg or, you know, science lab experiment. Um, yeah. So include them with that story in age appropriate ways. Um, celebrate it as my parents celebrated it. Um, celebrate, you know, if it is a bicultural, bi-ethnic or multicultural thing, you know, um, let them dabble into their country genetic origin. Um, don't take it personally if they want to get a gene test and reach out to the biological parents. A lot of it is actually relatively shallow and simple. A lot of it is we literally just want to know um, if we have a propensity for cancer or for obesity or for diabetes. That is going to be a large swath of the reason we are not questioning you as our parent when we want to know about our our uh our genetic legacy or you know um what country what city we're from you know um thinking of some kids that are born that were adopted from china that are going to our school and have american parents you know like and it's not an this shouldn't be taken as an insult as a parent that you know one of those kids wants to learn more about china because when he looks at the mirror, guess what he sees? A little Chinese boy. Exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, that's just the reality. And to try to hide that, to push that away, to be little that, I think is just going to cause more harm than good. It's going to make you seem blind and ignorant instead of embracing the the beauty of the nations that we see in, um, in Revelation 21. Um, and... You know, especially what what I love is I love it when I see like multicultural families, right? Where you have like, uh, for whatever reason, either different marriages or adoption, you know, you have different skin tones and colors and obvious different ethnicities. And they're all one happy family because family really can transcend something besides just blood. And uh, as Christians, we should be more attached to that reality than anyone else man you said a lot there and i have a feeling the next time you come back to the states and show up at the hp campus you're gonna have a few people lining up asking you for some more information uh because i think um just your perspective uh and your joy and your gospel centeredness in your responses man it's just been uh something i think um we all we all cherish and so thank you for for taking the time to be authentic yeah. with us and to give us a window into your life and your your situation um tell us a little bit about just what's going on in peru and how we can be praying for you uh before we log off here all right um so before that if um if any listener wants um whether you're adopted and you know you need someone else to talk to or you're a missionary kid growing up in a multicultural environment you're a parent whatever the case is um my email is cmfry427 at gmail.com. Again, that is cmfrey427 at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out um, if you're interested in missions. Uh, you want to know more about that, um, short-term, long-term, um, want to get in contact with my parents, whatever the case may be, feel free to email me there or on Facebook. Um, just my name, Christopher Fry. And if uh, 
you want to zone in more about the uh, mission aspect of my wife and I's life, um, you can find us at uh, Chris and Paula Fry, The View from Peru. Um, that's where we put most of our ministry-based uh, updates. Um, I have a podcast that I was doing a year ago and hope to start up again where we talk about missions and stuff. Um, so feel free to just reach out, Instagram, Facebook, email. Um, if you have WhatsApp, um, hit me up on Facebook or email and I can give you my WhatsApp number as well. I'm all for communicating and uh, answering and asking questions. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for getting us all the ways to get in touch with you. I know uh, all my international friends, WhatsApp is what's up. So uh, yeah. that's how I know you're an international dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am by no means a political expert. I'm going back to the sec second part that you asked about. Um, I barely understand American politics and there's two parties. Um, so I'm pretty out of the loop with Peruvian politics because there's like about a dozen. Um, so this is going to be very shallow because it, I don't fully understand everything that is going on. Um, but basically what has happened is, um, so there was an election recently where they have to, in order to win a complete presidency, you have to have a certain uh, percentage, right? And there were uh, five people running for president. So because no one had that certain percentage, they've now boiled it down to two. Um, Keiko Fujimori and Pedro Castillo. Keiko Fujimori is the daughter of the president from the early 90s who ruthlessly exterminated the terrorism, the Shining Path, which was a terrorist, murderous, communist party. Ruthlessly rooted them out. Um, also did some pretty bad things as well uh, throughout the constitution, because at that point it really didn't be thrown out, but then try to bring in one that would say he can like rule, like have as many five years since as president as he wanted. Um, so there was a lot of good and a lot of bad with that guy. Um, he was the one that got out. He was the one that, you know, took out the terrorism from the eighties and the nineties, but he also did a lot of bad things on the way and after. And eventually he had to flee to Japan because of, you know, the things he wanted to do once he had everything stable and the corruption. So that was all in the 90s. Um, then last year, we actually went through four presidents, um, dude, all relatively peacefully. That uh, that uh, puts the American landscape into perspective, though, like yeah. heavily. Yeah. Yeah. We went through four presidents. One of them was the same president twice. But essentially what happened was Congress, um, one president was... No, this was a couple of years ago. Again, sorry about the timeline. Wikipedia is probably more accurate than I am. But um, the one president we all really liked, he uh, you know, studied in the U.S., uh, economics expert. Turns out he was into some deep-seated corruption. So he got thrown out. Then we had to quickly move the vice president, who was also our ambassador to Canada, fly him in. He became the president. Eventually, the Congress tried to throw him out. They did. They elected someone. We No one liked her. The police... And the military sided with the populace, so the Congress stepped back, put him, then they got him out again, and he elected this temporary president. 
who promised us that he would not run. And uh, surprisingly, he actually stuck with that. Um, and so that was the compromise that the country made with the Congress. And so now that's why we're voting. We just had our vote where we went from five down to two. And uh, so now for those two, one of them is the daughter of the president from the 90s who had to flee to Japan due to the corruption after saving the country and doing a lot of bad stuff in order to save the country and just because he wanted to. That daughter, Keiko Fujimori, has been in and out of jail a couple of times due to her uh, political corruption with, uh, I think she's a congresswoman or something in the, like that. And I think she's been in jail twice. Uh, somehow her party has always gotten her back out. So she's running. Um, and then there is uh, the up-and-comer cut us all by surprise. A lot of us didn't even realize that he was going to make it onto the ballot, at least in Lima. Uh, Pedro Castillo, I believe is his name. He is from outside of Lima. He's from one of like the more province, mountain-like areas, which has garnered him a whole lot of press and a whole lot of love from everyone outside of Lima. So one-third of the country lives in Lima. About 10, Lima is about a city of about 10 million, and then there's about 20 million that live outside of the city province of Lima. So a lot of the provinces have gotten sick of the policies that Lima politicians have made for Lima that have had no to negative effects on everywhere else outside of Lima. So all this sounds good. Okay, you know, normally, you know, we'd all be down. Okay, simple bet, right? Uh, we don't want someone whose dad had to flee the country and hide in Japan uh, due to uh, corruption and who herself has been uh, involved in scandals. So, you know, this other guy seems to be rooting for the little man, for the province man. So uh, what's wrong with him? Um, He is really chummy with uh, the people in Ecuador and Venezuela. And in case you don't know, Venezuela black market mostly consists of fruits, vegetables, and toilet paper because those are the only places you can buy those. There's been a mass immigration of fleeing Venezuela over the last few years and coming to Peru because we had the most stable economic environment over the last few years. So now the Castillo was to implement very similar policies that the Venezuelan president has done and the Ecuadorian president has done. Um, and by the way, Ecuador and the United States, because of you know the Ecuadorian president, have been off and on politically because he kind of looks like a dictator because he kind of is. Because um, as good as you know socialist ideals might work in you know the Nordic countries, Latin America has a really bad history of making anything socialist work um, since you know the 30s. <laughs> um, and so he wants to do essentially what Venezuela did to the oil, which is nationalize our silver and gold mines and anything else that can make um, him or his party rich, which will look great for two years, but then completely bankrupt the country. And then all the Venezuelans will have to go back to Venezuela, along with a lot of Peruvians um, <laughs> who are then trying to escape. Man, for being a guy who doesn't know anything about politics, I feel like you just summed that up pretty succinctly <laughs> in an impressive form, man. That's crazy. Chris, I appreciate you being on and sharing your story and just uh, helping us understand from your perspective how God builds a family. And uh, I think you've given us a lot to appreciate about the nuance of the gospel. And so listeners, if this conversation has helped you, if you want to get in touch with Chris, you can check the show notes. We're going to put all that information that he dropped 
uh, in this episode on the show notes and you can um, check it out there. Don't forget to like and subscribe us uh, to, to the podcast uh, wherever you're listening to this um, and follow us on Facebook at the Following Faith Pod. Um, until next time, we hope this conversation has helped you follow Jesus further. We'll see you guys.